Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, FT Weekend listeners. This is Lila. This week, we're bringing you one of our most popular episodes from our back catalog with my colleagues Inuma Okoro and Tim Harford, and with the Turkish writer and activist Elif Shafak. We chose it because Elif and I have a conversation that feels especially poignant right now as the war in Ukraine takes on an ever more gruesome shape. It's about war and national identity and accumulated grief. We also talk about how cultural stories get constructed and passed down through history, and what we do with those stories now, which parts of those stories we let ourselves see and which parts we don't. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We are working on a segment on Ukraine and Russia that will help you make sense of the cultural side of this war. In the meantime, stay well and stay safe. Hello and welcome to our third episode of the FT Weekend podcast. This episode is really close to my heart. I'm excited to introduce you to two FT columnists that I love. They both always have something surprising and thoughtful to say. And also one of my favorite novelists. You only have so many heroes. And the writer Elif Shafak is one of mine. In cultures where there is no freedom of speech, maybe words do matter even more. Maybe Mm. stories matter even more. I honestly think the novel is one of our last remaining democratic spaces. And I always find my way back. It's almost like... That relationship that you, you swear, I swear this is the end. We're broken up for good. <laughs> People say life's not a rehearsal, but life's not a performance either. Like, who am I supposed to show evidence of how I've spent my life? No one cares. It's just me. On this episode, I speak with the Turkish-British writer Elif Shafak about identity and the stories we inherit. We'll also check in with Tim Harford, the FT's undercover economist, on how to break free of our to-do lists. We're going to start with a question, though. Just a small question. What does home mean to you? For instance, I live in New York. I grew up in New England. I have family in Greece and roots in Armenia. I've lived in London. And there are spots in all of those places which make me feel like, ooh, like a little shiver of belonging, a kind of unconscious familiarity. It's like there's a living piece of you there, waiting, dormant. And every time you return, it just wakes up. In New York, there's this stretch on the F train in Brooklyn that gives me this feeling of home, especially in the late afternoon when the sun is hitting the city and she's looking her best. The train goes from underground to overground for a few stops, and you can see the Manhattan skyline on one side and the Statue of Liberty on the other, and this long view of the boroughs. It's one of those views of New York that makes you think, wow, New York City. And no matter how many years I've lived there, I still always look. That's the train I took to meet my colleague, Inuma Okoro. Inuma writes a weekly column for FT Weekend, and her writing is extremely reflective. She's great at taking these big everyday life topics like love and friendship and exploring them, often through pieces of art. 
So when you finish, it's like you suddenly have words for all these ambiguous feelings you didn't even realize you held. For a recent column, Enuma wrote a love letter to New York. She moved back here right before the pandemic. I asked her to meet me in one of her favorite places in the city to talk about what the city and what home mean to her. Do you want to sit over there? Uh, sure, yeah, that sounds great. And then I would love for you to show me around a little. She chose the Diane von Furstenberg Gallery in the Meatpacking District. It's a cavernous white room with double high ceilings, and top to bottom are portraits. Bold portraits, big and small, with vibrant colors. They're all by the same artist, Ashley Longshore, and they're all of very recognizable, very powerful women. Nina Simone, Josephine Baker, Michelle Obama, Greta Thunberg, Beyonce. We have Toni Morrison, um, Oprah Winfrey. There's so few places I've come across that are, that are committed to celebrating the beauty of women and not just their physical beauty, but their interior beauty. And I feel as though this little gallery, I mean, I write about the arts. I walk into galleries and museums all the time. But this little gallery with these brilliant, bright um, portraits of women through time who have in some way or another shaped our, the way we see the world, um, I couldn't think of a better place. Enuma and I were sitting on a sofa at the window looking into the room. She was wearing this neon pink dress, and she looked like one of the women. She actually really matched the women on the walls. New York is like a, like one of these vibrant women in the room. Yeah. In the sense that I, I think New York is a bit unconquerable. <laughs> that there may be seasons of, there may be down seasons. We all have down seasons. These brilliant women have all had their down seasons. Um, both in the spotlight and in their personal lives. And I think New York can be looked at in a similar way. Inuma was born in Manhattan, but she's lived in many places. Paris, Oxford, Lagos, Nigeria, Abidjan, and the Ivory Coast. But she keeps coming back to New York. How would you describe you in New York? Like, what parts of your personality does it pull out? New York keeps me on the tip of my toes. It keeps me believing, like, that anything is possible still. And the other thing it does is it continually challenges me to exceed my own limits. And that's actually something I can also say for Nigeria. But I think that's one of the poles of New York for me is it reminds me that I'm still capable of so much growth. And a lot of that growth will come from pushing my own boundaries. And New York is a city, I think, that doesn't really allow you to stay comfortable. Mm -hmm. And if you do, you're very cognizant of the fact that you're doing that. I always find my way back. It's almost like that relationship that you, you swear, I swear this is the end. We're broken up for good. <laughs> but something about that relationship brings out something about you that you love. Yeah. And you're, not, you, you're never quite willing to give that up. Um, so the relationship may shift. You may at different seasons not be as close as you were. But you'll always have, there'll always be a, an opening and a space for a reconnection. So how long do you anticipate that you'll be here? You know, do you feel like I'm in this season and I know where I'll go next or it sort of takes you? I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, that's not true. I do have some ideas. <laughs> but I, I, I want life to, I want to give life room to also extend its own invitations. So the way I look at it, I'm here for now. And, and I think that's, that's, uh, that's good enough to know.
A few years ago, life gave me an invitation to visit Armenia. My mother is Armenian, and her father survived the Armenian genocide in 1915, when 1.5 million Armenians were killed at the end of the Ottoman Empire. Turkey still denies the Armenian genocide, and for political reasons, even the U.S. didn't officially acknowledge it until this year, 106 years later. So a lot of the Armenian identity is really wrapped around trying to have this history affirmed. There's like a fear of being erased. Um, There's a need to keep the culture alive. Our family is from what is now considered Eastern Turkey. And because most of the Armenian history there has been destroyed, we never knew where home really was. The modern country of Armenia, we thought it would feel culturally different, and we didn't think to go. Actually, really, it felt like a block. Going to Armenia felt like going to the moon. But, you know, people have been to the moon. So, in 2018, we went. When I went to Armenia, I found something I think anyone with multiple identities can relate to. It was a place where everyone looked like me and where I didn't have to explain my culture. But also, I realized I actually didn't know anything about these people. I'd come back with all this privilege that our family had acquired from building a life in the U.S., and my understanding of Armenianness felt almost out of date, like it was stuck in this time capsule. I actually wrote about it, and the link to that piece is in the show notes. Since that trip, I've been on a kind of journey to understand this part of my identity. It's like a search for the missing stories that died with my grandparents. It's questions about what generational trauma we hold and what we let go of. And through that journey, I've leaned heavily on the writing of Alif Shafak. Alif did something very courageous in 2006. She wrote a book called The Bastard of Istanbul, which acknowledges the genocide. The Turkish government put her on trial for insulting Turkishness, which made it very hard for her to continue to live in Istanbul. She's quite heroic from a human rights standpoint. She's always standing up for the lost and forgotten, for women, for minorities. And the book put a young Armenian-American woman up in conversation with a young progressive Turkish woman for the kind of nuanced conversation I've always wanted to have. Elif's most recent book, The Island of Missing Trees, gives space for another very sensitive conversation between cultures, this one between the Greeks and Turks living in Cyprus. It's told partly through the point of view of a fig tree, and she uses nature and the fig tree to see beyond man-made walls. Elif and I met in person in London. She writes regularly for FT Weekend, and we had both just been to the FT Weekend Festival. She is serious. She is warm. She has a soft urgency to her. We sort of locked eyes at the start of this interview, and an hour later, I'm not sure either of us had blinked. Alif, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for inviting me. Alif, I would love to hear about your relationship with Turkey. I actually met a Turkish Cypriot person this weekend, and he said, oh, you're interviewing Alif Shafak. Like, every time she says something, it's the headline in Turkey. Like, it's on TV. (laughs) And I thought, wow, this woman is really brave. (laughs) I wonder what your relationship now is with the country, um, but also just what gives you courage. I, I really appreciate you, you saying that, but I, I'm, I don't see myself as a brave person. But what I have is curiosity. 
I really love to ask questions, sometimes including difficult questions about difficult issues, you know, including taboos, the things that we might find difficult to talk about. People, of course, realize that it's difficult to question political taboos in Turkey, such as the Armenian genocide. But at the same time, in cultures where there is no freedom of speech, maybe words do matter even more. Maybe mm. stories matter even more. So I don't know. I mean, people share books, people, that word of mouth. One copy is sometimes read by, on average, 45 people. Yeah. You know, in Turkey, if you like a book, you don't just put it back on the bookshelf. You pass it on. So the love that comes from the readers is very genuine and incredibly, I think, precious, heartwarming. But when I look at the politics and politicians in Turkey, I feel very, very depressed. One of the things I love about your novels is that they do this interesting thing where you use fiction to create a scenario that may not normally happen. And then you allow the characters to play out conversations that are complex and nuanced and satisfying because you just don't get to hear those conversations often. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about The Island of Missing Trees, this new novel, and what the conversation was meant to be there. Indeed. And and may I also say what you mentioned, what you said is really close to my heart because I think multiplicity, pluralism, you know, there's a multiplicity of voices inside novels. I, I love that. I love that. I honestly think the novel is one of our last remaining democratic spaces. I think I've been wanting to write about Cyprus for a very long time, yeah. to be honest. You know, it has always been somewhere in my soul. I've been thinking about it, researching, reading, but I could never find an opening, a gate into the story, mostly because it's not an easy story to tell. And in Cyprus, it's not like the past is a bygone affair left behind. Mm. I think it's very much alive within the present moment. There's no doubt that we're talking about a beautiful island with very, you know, um, beautiful people, north and south. But at the same time, it's a place where there's accumulated grief, resentment, grievances, you know, and none of that is easy to talk about. And there are clashing memories. So how do you tell the story of a divided land without yourself falling into the trap of nationalism as a storyteller? How do you tell the story of a place that has experienced ethnic violence, some sort of civil war, without yourself going back into the codes of tribalism? Right. You know, That wasn't easy until I found the fig tree. Only then I could find the courage to start writing the story. You know, I, I'm Greek and Armenian. I, I didn't know you were Greek and Armenian. I, Due to, to your surname, I thought you might be you know, Greek. Greek, I yeah. The, yeah, both. <laughs> yeah, I'm both. And American. And my mother's parents survived the genocide and came over in the 1920s. And you learn from these cultures like so many wonderful things, right? You learn there's like a richness and a beauty to both cultures. And they're embracing and they're large and they're loud and they're loving. And, you know, <laughs> they're superstitious and, and they're funny. But they also hold on to things very strongly. Yeah. And you're taught through osmosis not to like Turks, not to trust them. And as a modern woman who believes in the intersectionality of privilege and pain, (laughs) I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I hear you. And of course, these things run throughout generations, right? Yes. So from one generation to the next, understandably, because there's a lot of pain, accumulated pain, the memories 
Yeah. There are traumas um, that people have gone through. And I think that's why memory matters. And we should be able to talk about the past in a calm, nuanced way. Yeah. Sometimes grieve together, mourn together, empathize, um, and then hopefully learn from the mistakes of the past and hopefully never ever to repeat them again. But what we have in Turkey is, of course, we come from a very long and rich, complex history. That doesn't translate into a strong memory, however. Interesting. So just the opposite. I think we're a society of collective amnesia in Turkey. Mm. Our entire relationship with the past is just full of ruptures and void. And that void, once it's there, it's filled in with either ultranationalist interpretations of the past or Islamist interpretations of the past, which says whatever our ancestors have done was great. We were a great empire, a mighty empire. So you can never question that narrative. You know, your novel, The Bastard of Istanbul, um, it was passed around my family like required really? reading. Yeah, it was required reading. Um, and uh, it was a very moving story to kind of um, see parts of our culture represented in, in this book. And, and it puts kind of a young Armenian-American woman up in conversation with a young progressive Turkish woman And it acknowledged the genocide, which, of course, was difficult for you um, and um, and we were grateful for. But but also grappled with what Armenians really want in recognition and and what would make them feel whole and how much of our identities can't be extrapolated from this event. And it just had the complicated conversation. Who are we as a people? other than the genocide. Like, we, we use it to define us, but what else are we? Like, what makes us Armenian? And I find your words so important. I also think that there is a generational difference. I don't know if you would agree with me, but the oldest generations, the ones who have gone through the biggest traumas, you know, they carry all those memories inside, but they don't necessarily have a language. Uh, they don't maybe even know how to talk about it. And it's very painful. We have a sense about that. The second generation, maybe it's not as interested in speaking about the past. Again, understandably, especially if there has been a displacement, especially if there has been a migration, because they have to find their feet in their adopted lands. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to you know, build a future. So they need to look forward. Then it's the third or the fourth generations, the youngest in the families, I think, who are asking the most important questions about identity, family stories, the stories of their ancestors. And so I have met many, for instance, Armenian-American youth who have old memories or Mm -hmm. who carry the memories of their grandparents, which to me is very interesting. It's almost as if, and I feel this way with others my age, it's almost as if we want to be able to look into the past and see the whole story clearly from top to bottom and read it like a book. But we know pieces and we'll never know. And and that is life too, yeah. isn't it? I mean, in the novel, there's a passage when it says, you know, in real life, stories never come to us in a linear way. Yes. It always comes in pieces, like sometimes even like a collage. It's not easy because we also have to accept that there's so much we don't know. Yeah. But we we appreciate knowledge. I think knowledge is important. Memory is a responsibility in that in that regard. I would rather we be able to talk mm-hmm. and especially listen to each other. Only then we can heal. There are ways in which it seems that 
Um, you encourage us to be open-minded with others. And there are also things that it sounds like you you don't tolerate. And where where is that line? Beautiful question. Challenging question, too. So I think we should be very aware, you know, about issues like racism, homophobia, sexism, you know, any ideology, any narrative that divides humanity into boxes and assumes that one box is superior to the other. I don't like that. However, as I'm critical, while I'm critical of the narrative or people who are the, doing, you know, the demagogues of that narrative, at the same time, I think as a writer, I have a responsibility to connect with people who come from all kinds of backgrounds and who might have voted differently you know, for different reasons. I cannot belittle that. When we're in the company of other people, when we're in the public space, energy is contagious. It travels. You know, if all my friends are biased against a certain minority, their biases affect me and mine affects other people's. But when I'm reading a novel, I become an individual. I distance myself from that collective energy. Interesting. And I retreat into an inner garden. And when I am there, I think it's easier for me to connect, even with people who I might regard as my other. Mm -hmm. Last question. What brings you joy these days? There's so many things that bring me joy. I mean, seemingly small things that we used to take for granted, like sitting under a tree and reading a book, we didn't pay much attention to these things. And maybe with the pandemic and with the climate crisis, we're realizing actually how important they are. So this is the right moment to reassess, restructure our own priorities and values. What do we want in life? Is it to make more money and profit and be, you know, constantly in a rush and in endless hurry? Or are there other things that are more immaterial whether it's family, love, friendship, sisterhood, things that really cannot be translated into money, and yet they matter so much. Yeah. So this is a moment of reckoning, and I think we need to reorder all our priorities, both individually but also collectively. The other day I ate a plum, and I thought, like, this is the perfect plum. Exactly, just to see the joy in that yeah. moment. Yeah, I'm eating yeah. a plum. How, how precious is that? Um, Elif, thank you so much thank for Thank you being so here. much. I really appreciate it. Me too. And finally, a moment to think about a less romantic aspect of home. Getting stuff done. How we live our day-to-day -day lives. How we stay organized and productive. So, Tim, you know, I imagine you're an extremely busy person. You've written 10 books, right? Uh, something like that. Yeah, it's about, it's about right. That's Tim Harford. You may know him as the Undercover Economist, which is his weekly column for the FT Weekend magazine. Tim is extremely well known for asking big questions through a small, human-sized lens. He makes us think about how economics affect us in tangible, everyday ways. He's also possibly my most prolific colleague and incredibly productive. You write a column every week. You host a podcast, Cautionary Tales. You have a BBC Radio 4 show. It kind of makes me anxious just thinking about all the things that, <laughs> that you do. And so I'm curious first, like, how do you organize your time? Like, what does your to-do list look like? I'm one of these people who plays around with different ideas, which is probably a bad, a bad plan. But every day I have a piece of paper in front of me 
I divide it into three. There's a half and two quarters. And on the half, I write the thing that I really need to get done and any notes about how I'm going to do it. And then on the quarter, I write the second thing I'd like to get done if I have the luxury of finishing the first thing. And then in the last quarter, I have all the little niggly things like do the laundry and do some exercise and pick up the milk and all of this stuff. (laughs) And so I'm trying to trick myself into thinking that it's really most important to do that big thing, even though it's one item on the list. Right. I mean, this is ludicrous, right? You should be able to just write a list and say the one at the top is the most important thing, do that. So this is a this is a pretty low tech to do list. There's clever stuff behind it. I'd like to I'd like to suggest, but fundamentally, getting stuff done isn't quite as complicated as people sometimes make it out to be. Tim recently wrote his undercover economist column about letting go of your to do list. I've put it in the show notes. He's right. We really do make it pretty complicated. There are Reddit threads on productivity porn. There are Instagram posts about bullet journaling. It's like productivity is this mystery that we just can't for the life of us crack. I was reading a recent book by Oliver Berkman. Um, One of the points that Oliver makes is there are all kinds of clever things that you can do, but fundamentally, there's just an infinite amount of things that you could do, and you can't do all of them. And whatever system you have has to reckon with that. Oliver Berkman recently wrote a very popular piece for the magazine about this. I've also put that in the show notes. And Oliver pointed to this sort of fantasy that I think we often have, that I, when he identified it, I was like, oh yeah, I kind of do have that fantasy, which is that once you've got sufficiently organized, then there's no more pain, there's no more stress, and you'll be completely chill once you've got your stuff together. And of course, you never have your stuff together sufficiently because things come up, you know? <laughs> but of course, because that's life. And, and you shouldn't, you should not want it to be otherwise because the, the, the moment when stuff stops coming up is the moment you die. The column that I wrote w- was partly about this habit of making to-do lists out of fun stuff and when that becomes pathological. Th- those lists can inspire adventure and action, and that's great. But I think they also can very easily become their own kind of chore. And then well, I, let's say you tick everything off the list. Are you, are you happy then? And you, you have to sort of actually enjoy the journey. I know it's a cliche, but you have to enjoy the journey rather than just the destination. You had this quote in your column from Toni Morrison's novel, Sula, which I really liked where Sula says, I sure did live in this world. And uh, the person she was speaking to said, really, what have you got to show for it? And Sula said, show to who? And it's, sort it's of, amazing. Yeah, it's, that's it, right? It's amazing. It really is. When she puts those words on it, you realize, oh, yeah, Life's, I mean, people say life's not a rehearsal, but life's not a performance either. Like, who am I supposed to show evidence of how I've spent my life and who, who am I supposed to show it to? No one cares. It's just me. Tim, I almost feel like asking for tips about this is another form of a to-do list. But <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know a lot about behavioral economics. And um, I'm curious what we can do to live in our lives. It's like, how do we sort of catch ourselves? <laughs> Uh, fortunately, I have a three-point list, and if you follow my three, <laughs> I don't know. There's no, there's no solution. You just got to be aware, and I think to to name the problem is helpful. But it's it's a balancing act because I don't want to just drift through life 
not getting stuff done, not being able to look back and say, I achieved this or I achieved that, or there's this, this memory and that memory. And those are great times. I want, I want all of that, but it's okay if not every day is like that. It's okay if some days we're just living. That's the balancing act. And I don't think anybody's got it figured out and I don't think anybody ever will. And that's fine. In fact, it's more than fine. That's kind of wonderful, isn't it? Right. We don't need to. I mean, if we had it all figured out, our lives would be very boring. Absolutely. Tim Harford, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our third episode of FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Please subscribe and maybe tell two friends or drop it into your Instagram stories or leave us a review. These are all things that really help people find the show. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. Email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. Next Saturday, we'll hear from London-based writer Imogen West Knights, who gives us permission to indulge a bit and explores the idea of treat brain. FT columnist Janan Ganesh explains why he decidedly did not have a lockdown epiphany. And travel writer Maria Schallenbarger brings us, quite literally, on to the Orient Express. You can always read the stories we mentioned through the links in our show notes. You can also find a special offer there for an FT Weekend subscription, as well as at ft.com slash weekend podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. George Drake Jr. is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbard-Doyen are our assistant producers. And Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley is our executive producer. And we had editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week.